Hey everybody, this is Brett. And I'm Christian. And you're listening to the Gilded Films Podcast. 1972 edition. Bienvenue, welcome, and we are here to make you offers that you simply can't refuse. So if you listen to our little podcast here, you will enjoy our latest episode. Hello, it is I, Christian. Welcome, as always, to the Gilda Film Podcast, which picture was best? And if you didn't catch the references I was referring to there, they're from Cabaret and, of course, The Godfather. The two big movies, along with three others that we will be covering for this episode. Um gonna be pretty interesting because those were pretty much the dominant forces here for this one um as always hello and hello to brett hello hello and hello to our newest guest co-host what the heck is his name please welcome live from new jersey it's anthony scalia hello nice to be on here big fan of the podcast Something tells me I'm only on it because you needed someone Italian for The Godfather, but I'll take it any way I can get it. Yeah, I'm not even, <laughs> even going to lie about it. <laughs> I, okay, so basically, uh, Anthony, are, Anthony and I are good friends. We met through Tumblr. Uh, we're both pretty much into classic films. That's how we pretty much met. Another person my age who's into like the old timey films, I'm literally looking at him right now and I see the Universal Monsters right behind him. That's his big thing. Last year we watched the whole, what was it, the Mummy series together? Yeah, we watched all four Mummy movies and hopefully we'll do the same with The Invisible Man this year. Right, which I found on some streaming sites just by the way. But yeah, so uh, I invited him on here because I was like, you seem to know some stuff about The Godfather, so (laughs) might as well fit the stereotype. Yeah, no, yeah, it's hard to get away from it. I mean, you'll find that that's the one film that, I mean, I, th- I think overall Italians are pretty receptive of the mob movies, but The Godfather in particular is the one where everyone points to as, you know, being proud to be Italian because they love The Godfather so much. So I'm not one of those necessarily, but I think it's a great film. I really just love the movie. There you go. I will also say that Anthony is a filmmaker at heart. Um, you've made some short films. You've won a lot of awards for those films. Can we see those anywhere? Just, we'll remind people at the end, but right now, can we see those anywhere? Yeah, um, you could go, I just have a YouTube channel, Shark by Productions on YouTube, and my short films and documentaries are listed there. Uh, there's a few in particular that are actually some sports categories. I think, you know, you might be interested in that, Brett. But um, okay. yeah, I've made some films and I'm working on two projects right now that are still in development. I want to mention those at the end because one of them was like super exciting. Every time you talk to me about it, it's like interesting. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So yes. And uh, hello, Brett. I guess you're here. Yeah, I'm here. No, (laughs) this is really cool. This is the first time we got a filmmaker on our film podcast. So this is really cool. I also want to say like, I didn't know Anthony that you were like really into the universal monster movies and what a coincidence I was watching Dracula, like right before we got on tonight. So it was just meant to be. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect film. That's awesome. 
But yeah, like Christian said, we're going to look at 1972. This is the second time we've covered a year from the 70s. Um, we first covered first 1975. Time, our first time since 2018. Yeah, that was one of our very first episodes. I think it's actually like one of our most listened to episodes too. So um, pretty popular one. But yeah, Oscars 1972, pretty big deal. Largely because of, like Christian mentioned, the two heavyweights that were going at it this year in the best picture category. Um, they were held on March 27th, 1973. Christian refers to them as the year of Liza. <laughs> we'll reveal why. Uh, best picture that year obviously did go to the Godfather. Best director actually went to Bob Fosse for Cabaret, however. Best actress went to Liza Minnelli also for Cabaret. Best actor to Marlon Brando for The Godfather, who refused the win. We'll definitely get into that because it's very interesting. Uh, best Supporting Actress. The only acting category that did not go to Cabaret or The Godfather was Eileen Heckert for Butterflies Are Free. And Best Supporting Actor went to Joel Gray for Cabaret. Uh, most wins of the night. Cabaret with eight. The most wins without a Best Picture win, if I'm not mistaken. Am I right, Christian? Yep, still holds the record. Yeah. Pretty wild. Uh, but The Godfather and Cabaret did tie for the most nominations with 10. This is a year where we had multiple hosts. There was Carol Burnett, Michael Caine, Charlton Heston, and Rock Hudson all shared hosting duties. Uh, this is actually the first time two African-American women received Best Actress nominations. Um, you had Diana Ross playing another musical legend in Lady Sings the Blues. She plays Billie Holiday. And you also had Cicely Tyson, who um, played lead role in Sounder, which is a film we'll talk about as well. Uh, this is the first year that all the Oscar winners were brought on stage at the end of the show, which is it's interesting. Awkward. awkward. Sounds very awkward. You know, I was watching videos today of like some of the winners and the whole ceremony just seemed very, very awkward to me and very unglamorous, especially the set. Um, Interesting, Charlie Chaplin won his only competitive Oscar Best Original Dramatic Score for Limelight, which actually premiered in L.A. 20 years after it was first after it was actually made, which is kind of interesting. Rosalind Russell finally received an honorary Oscar at this ceremony, one of the great classic movie actresses. As did also Edward G. Robinson, but he was, uh, by this time he was already passed away, so his wife accepted it. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah, 85 million viewers, which is like huge. Cause like nowadays it's what, just under 30 million, which I mean is kind of expected, but yeah, big deal. 85 million viewers turning into this Oscar ceremony. See the Godfather win. But yeah, so that's kind of what we're thinking about. What we got going with the Oscars this year, like Christian said, Cabaret and the Godfather were clearly the two big ones going at it. Um, but we'll go through all the nominees for best picture today. Like we always do. Christian, are you ready to go ahead and take us away with our first film here? Yes, I am. Perfect. I need a drum roll here. There we go. Wow. That was straight out of Christmas vacation. All right, here we go. Picture it. Germany, Weimar Republic. 1931, The Kit Kat Club, and Liza Minnelli is Sally Bowles. She's a singer. 
she falls for this British guy named Cliff, who's come to teach some Germans a little bit of English. Life is a cabaret, old chum, come to the cabaret. All right, this is cabaret. Like I said, um, Sally Bowles is played by Liza Minnelli. She falls for this British guy who comes to stay at a boarding house that she lives in. It is basically their life together. She introduces him to the cabaret, to sort of her passions. There's a lot of sexual tension in the air between these two. He has his own secrets. She has her own secrets. They're very reserved with each other. Um, there's a whole other, uh, what is it, plot here of another couple that's trying to get involved with one another. And this is all set in the Weimar Republic, which was the years before Hitler and the Nazis rose to power. Uh, Cabaret is sort of this before picture of a very glamorous, very sexualized world of Germany right before it went to shit in a handbasket. And sort of this, I would say he's almost like a mythical figure, but he is present within all of this is a master of ceremonies simply called the MC. And he sort of guides this story along while also um, introducing a lot of the songs. This is a musical. It's not a musical in tr the traditional sense where people are singing and dancing. And it's like, hello, cabaret. All the songs pretty much take place inside this club. There is one exception, and it is one of the most like powerful exceptions in this. It's kind of scary. It's a shift in viewpoints of Germany. Um, but yeah. That's Cabaret. This is based on a uh, play and also some novels as well. A lot of characters coming from the novels and another play. So it's based on a Broadway musical and another straight play adaptation. It's totally different from the Broadway musical, I will say. I love this movie though. I grew up watching it, oddly enough. Seventh grade was the first year I saw it and I never looked back since. Um, I have a lot of issues with it in terms of its plot structure, but we might talk about that in a second. Uh, this is also directed by Bob Fosse, who was famous at the time for uh, being a Broadway director and choreographer. Liza Minnelli is in it, Michael York is in it, Joel Gray is in it. And yeah, I'm glad this was here, I guess. I don't have a choice, I guess. So, Cabaret, go. Okay. Um, I mean, I am traditionally not a fan of musicals, as Christian knows, although I do have to say I was quite entertained through this film. Uh, what, I, what I found most interesting is the parts that I was most entertained by were the musical numbers, and I was expecting there to be a lot more of them. Uh, the opening was great. The Liza's solo song was fantastic, probably, probably my favorite scene in the whole film. Um, every powerful emotional scene came through music and I was expecting a few more of those. Uh, in terms of the structure of the film, I thought that it was interesting to take a look at Berlin sort of before, as Christian said, the shit hit the fan. But I was a little bit confused on the uh, sort of cinematography aspect of it, I guess. It looked like it was shot through a old filter or something that for some reason, it felt like it was shot in this like dirty looking club, which I guess is what it's supposed to have been. And it succeeded that way, but it made the film look almost low budgetly shot for, for an Academy Award winning film. I don't know if you've seen that, if you got that sense, Brett, or if anybody else got that sense. I think a little bit. I think that's just something I like, it, it seemed like gritty to me, which is like, to me, it just stuck out as like a 70s, 
musical. What I would expect from a musical to come from the 1970s film. Yeah, I do kind of see that. I do think there are times where it is like quite brilliant. Um, specifically, like you said, kind of Liza's solo sequences where she's singing like maybe this time and you've got like the blue light behind her. And, you know, obviously that's kind of an iconic shot now, but still pretty brilliant. But yeah, I could definitely kind of see that. Um, I think it does kind of fit the story in some ways. And this idea that to me, it almost seems like, you know, the context of the Nazis coming is always there. But at times our characters seem almost oblivious to it. Um, like until, you know, we have this scene where the young kid is singing like the Nazi salute and singing that song to all these people. And we kind of see a little bit more head on take of what's going on here. But for the most part, our characters are kind of like living in their own world. A lot of which takes place inside this club. And oftentimes that context doesn't become essential to, you know, their lives until it's pretty much too late. You know, I think the, the last shot of this film is really, really somber and drives that point home, which is really interesting. But well, because it's no. a perfect image too of like the first shot of this film. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like comparing those two and seeing what has changed in what seems like a relatively short amount of time. Really interesting stuff. Yeah, I don't know. This was the first time I'd seen this. It's funny because like I've heard, I thought I had heard a lot about this movie. I think just because Christian, I've heard you talk about it a lot and whatnot but I also didn't know a whole lot about it going in like I was expecting a traditional musical where they like break out in song and dance here and there and whatnot and it's not that at all um, sometimes like I always kind of go back and forth on like whether films like this really are musicals just for that aspect like the singing none of it is unexpected I think the master of ceremonies kind of helps create that though because at times he seems almost a little bit removed from the reality and Joel Gray obviously is great in that role. Really interesting Oscar win because we really don't know anything about his character aside from like his performative, his performance nature in the film. Um, it's not someone we like get to know on a personal level, but it's a great performance. And of course there's Liza, who is brilliant. I mean, what can I say? Um, it's one of those great performances where you go in and I go in expecting a lot out of it and it meets my expectations. Um, she has this real classical movie star aura to her hmm. i think wonder where that came well, yeah right wonder where that came from it also makes sense because her character wants to be a classical movie star like that's what she wants from life and so her kind of reflecting that in her acting style is really cool but yeah i don't know christian you said you had some issues with the plot here i'm kind of interested in here to hear so okay so basically because i've been so i'm i love this like, I love this movie. I don't love it, love it like I used to. And the only reason is because I've seen many productions of the actual musical on a stage. And the songs in that are so good. Like, Anthony, you'd probably like the whole stage production as well. Because there's a whole subplot with some older characters, like an older couple. So, like, the two other characters in here who are falling in love, but he's Jewish and she's German or vice versa. They don't actually exist. There's like two older couples who have the same issues. They have some wonderful songs. And I think that's the only thing taking me out of this is I want these songs and I want this subplot between the, she basically owns the house that Liza and uh, 
okay. Cliff Dan or what's his name? Is this I keep saying Cliff? Is it Cliff or Brian? It's Brian. See, and that's another thing. I say Cliff because I'm used to the name being Cliff in the musical. Gotcha. Yes, but I, I mean, I like it. It's fine. I can understand, though, that you're coming off. Let's see. Hello, Dolly was in 1969, and that pretty much bombed and ended the traditional Hollywood musical. So you're not even, like, you're almost five years. We got to think of something. We can't do, like, a breakout into a song and dance. It has to be a drama first with some music in it. Mm-hmm. And that's you know? what it felt like. Yeah, that, I, yeah. I think that that's, it was effective in that way. Um, I was just surprised because I haven't seen many musicals and I guess especially any around the early 1960s. Like I've seen things from the 60s and from the late 70s where there's a lot of sort of music bookended in both of those things. I thought that the uh, character of Natalia was pretty interesting, actually, although she like you said, Christian, she's not in the play version. It's the uh, the woman who refuses to marry the man who's, you know, Jewish. Um, I thought that was was quite a good addition. I was interested in their love story almost more than whatever Sally had with Brian, because at least it was a little, something a little bit more concrete where it didn't feel like uh, it was changing every two seconds. And it was sort of hard to keep up with everything that was going on with their sort of love triangle. Um, I do want to mention too, that a dog that was killed, you know, Natalia's dog. I had that uh, exact dog that, that it was a oh. wire hair fox terrier. So when I saw that scene, I was like, oh no, no. I had that exact type of dog. Oh, that hurts. Yeah. But no, I, I did. Um, I did enjoy it. And I guess I was, I mean, I don't know if this is the format, but I guess I was just really surprised that Bob Fosse won best director for this film. This is the one thing I was trying to rationalize in my brain the whole time I'm watching it. Like, maybe you know more than me was this win a sort of nod to his like directing of a, st- a stage rendition of it or something like why did he win best director for this so i mean i tried to find anything i could about the whole godfather cabaret winning so many and i really couldn't um i'm trying to see here if he won a globe or if it was coppola who won the globe but the only thing like i can understand is that and again, this is just coming off of like my personal thing, but he's taking a musical that is traditionally known on a Broadway stage and turning it into something that at that time, a movie musical seemed impossible to make without it being a flop, you know? And it's yeah. like, it takes it in a whole different direction and it focuses it more on Liza and her star power than anything else. Right. Let's see. Yeah, I don't know. Like the Bob Fosse winning Best Director wouldn't, surprise me as much if it hadn't been over Francis Ford Coppola for The Godfather. Just because like, I mean, being The Godfather, I get like, we look at it differently now than back then probably. I mean, it's had time to gain its status, but like huge box office hits, um, you know, part of the the movie brat generation coming in and obviously an adored film. So, I mean, it's, it's, an, it's an impressive win for Fosse to go along with all the other wins it got. Um, it looks like, uh, well, I guess the Globes, I don't know how much they mattered at this point yet, but Francis did win the Globe. Interesting. Yeah. I also do want to mention that uh, Michael York, who plays Brian, uh, sounded, I, the whole film, I was like, I've heard this this accent before. Where is it? And I couldn't pin it down. And then finally I realized it's James Mason. I mean, they, they are <laughs> identical accents. I was, oh, 
hello, did somebody say my name? There we go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> for That's our fans amazing. Out there, James Mason is our special celebrity guest in a lot of episodes for whatever reason. <laughs> yeah, he rises from the dead quite often, <laughs> make an appearance. But yeah, no, it, it is interesting. I think, I mean, part of it may just be too that I, I think maybe the Academy was just like taken aback by a musical that wasn't like a musical, you know? I mean, it is so much different from any other, you know, musical type film that had come before it, not just in, you know, the way the songs are presented, but just the tone of the film too. I mean, it's it's not one of those happy-go-lucky MGM color musicals that they were probably used to. Right. Also, the GGA, the Directors Guild, they gave it to Coppola that year as well. Wow. So maybe maybe an upset, maybe a pretty big upset for Fosse there. Interesting. Has anyone seen the recent Fosse Vernon uh, miniseries that there was? Because... I've heard quite a bit about that. Christian's raising his hand. <laughs> is it good? It's very good. Yes. Nice. There's like, I mean, it's dedicated. There's what is it like two episodes dedicated to this whole thing. Mm, gotcha. Yeah. Well, Christian, do you want to run over our fun facts for this one real quick? Yes. All right. So this did win eight Oscars, as we said. Fosse for director, Minnelli for actress, Joel Gray for supporting actor, cinematography, uh, there is one shot that I love and it's right at the beginning and it's with all the women standing in their lines and they like point their hands out. Yeah. Mm. Makes me think. Uh, art direction, sound, film editing, and score, which is probably like an adaptation situation at this point. And two additional noms, picture and adapted screenplay, both won by The Godfather. Holds the record for the most wins without a best picture, loosely based on the 1966 Broadway musical and the Berlin stories by Christopher Isherwood and the play I Am a Camera. Wow. Many interiors were filmed on the soundstage that Willy Wonka had just finished shooting on. Vincent Minnelli helped Liza design her hair and makeup to fit the look of a jazz age flapper. Also, I will say that in the Broadway production, uh, Sally Bowles is not supposed to be a good singer at all. So if you ever listen to any recordings, uh, it's pitchy, dog. <laughs> listen to Judy Dench's performance. She is, she's oh. pushing, she is pushing the wind out of her. Wow. Let's see. Tomorrow Belongs to Me uh, has often been mistaken as a genuine Nazi anthem, although uh, out of candor and ebb, they're Jewish writers, so... <laughs> uh, numerous songs and plot lines were cut in order to, for the film uh, in order to focus on Liza. All the songs are diegetic for you normal people out there. That is, they take place within the film. We just lost the people who were like, hey, they're smarter than us. <laughs> However, many of the songs appear as background instrumental music. And let me tell you what, the two times that I've seen this this year, it, every time I hear the damn background music, I'm singing to myself because I know the words. <laughs> it's like, how the world can change. It can change like that due to one little word, married. Anyway, uh, though maybe this time didn't appear in the original show, it was pre-written as a song, or it was, pre, it was a pre-written song and Liza insisted that it be in the film and it most likely cost Candor and Ebb a chance to write a new song for a possible Oscar nom. Joel Gray is one of nine performers to win an Oscar for the role that he previously won a Tony for. Bob Fosse won an Oscar, a Tony, and an Emmy, all within the same year. Wow. Yes, he won the Tony first, Oscar, then Emmy. 
I have a little Roger Ebert quote here. He liked it. He said, this is no ordinary musical. Part of its success comes because it doesn't fall for the old cliche that musicals have to make you happy. Instead of cheapening the movie version by lighting its, its load of despair, director Fosse has gone right to the bleak heart of the material and stayed there well enough to win an Academy Award for Best Director. Now I looked, yeah. now I looked, this movie came out in February of 72. That's a year that Roger Ebert's already like, Best Director right here. Wow, okay. Yeah. Wow. Uh, it's AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movies, and number 63. Uh, AFI's 100 Years, 100 Songs, Cabaret, at number 18. And number five, Best AFI Movie Musical, out of 100. Interesting. Yes. Christian, since you've seen all the different versions of this, what, what is your favorite song from the, music, from the musical? <gasps> Any version, I guess. It could be the uh -huh. film version. Oh my gosh. Okay, so I enjoy this one song called uh, Don't Tell Mama, which mm. was cut. And that's sung by Sally. And then there's another one. What is it? If you brought me diamonds, if you brought me pearls, if you brought me roses like some other gents would bring to other girls, it wouldn't please me more than the gift I see. A pineapple for me. And it's basically... This older couple that I've spoken about, he brings her a pineapple as a sign of love. Interesting. Okay. Those are like the best songs. And also, if you ever listen to the 1998 revival, the uh, Entourage, fucking bangs. All right. <laughs> I'm sorry. And there are ways to find an actual stage production with, uh, what's, her, what's her name? Emma Stone. Emma Stone, yeah. I've seen it. It's all right. Yeah, you send it to me because that's my girl. And it's all nice. right. You learn a little bit more about the MC. That's cool. That's interesting. Yeah, Cabaret, not your typical musical. Um, very interesting, very in enjoyable, fun film. Um, any further thoughts on this one before we jump into our next nominee? How obsessed was I with this in seventh grade? I watched it a Friday night, and I watched it again the next Saturday morning. Wow. All right. Well, Anthony, you have our next film. So would you like to go ahead and take us away on that one? Deliverance, the film that kept Chubby Man out of the water before Jaws, <laughs> the reason Tidy Whitey single-handedly died out, Stand By Me with Grown Men and Sexual Assault, it's Deliverance. <laughs> Deliverance is a film about four city friends who are traveling through the backwoods of Georgia on a canoe trip in an attempt to ride down the fictional Kahulawasi River. Ignoring the warning signs that they are not welcomed by the locals, the men continue through the woods and into chaos as the locals begin to retaliate, leaving the four businessmen to fight for their lives. Um, yeah, so I picked this film because I remember as a kid, I used to watch this thing called the Bravo's Scariest Movie Countdown. It has the yes. like 100 scariest movie moments. It's actually a Halloween and life tradition of mine that I just watched that. Um, so that's when I first heard of it. And I asked my parents, what's this film, Deliverance? And they were like, it's terrifying. It is, it is terrifying. So I always thought it was a horror film. But I didn't know until I watched it, maybe when I was in college, like six years ago or so. That it's not, not exactly a horror film. I mean, there are some elements that are scary. But, um, you know, in, in terms of plot, it's sort of loose. I mean, it's, it's just friends who are on a trip and it's it's sort of like plot pieces like this happens and that happens and that happens but there's no 
real arc through it other than other than John Voight's character I would say is pretty much the only person who goes through any sort of significant change in the film everybody's pretty much set in their ways um I enjoy movies where the character is almost I mean the location is almost like a character and I get that here where you're sort of really like there's an emphasis on the nature that surrounds it uh and I sort of feel immersed by that forest in a way like the characters are um I think that the fear and the shock moments in this movie are effective. Uh, I, I do feel there's a sense of realism that's obviously sort of emphasized by the locals who were, you know, not actors, real people who are in these roles. That helps a lot. That's something that we don't see a lot anymore in films. And so it almost has this quasi-documentary feel, at least for the, at least for the first third of it, I'd say. Um, what I don't find effective is how it tries to make a larger statement about like our society being sort of like blindly industrialist. I agree with it. It's true, but I just don't feel like it has a place in this movie. And Burt Reynolds character in particular sort of feels forced that he has to keep bringing this up with this very like on the nose dialogue. I think that's the thing that's holding it back from me because they, they build it up, but there's no real payoff to it. It's just something that they keep mentioning. So I like the film overall, you know, it's suspenseful and it is terrifying in some aspects, but I think it falls flat on its larger message and should have just sort of sticked to being a good film. If that makes any sense. No, yeah, I actually have never thought about that. But like, I, I see where you come from. Cause it's like, okay, we have this, it starts out with Burt Reynolds describing what this dam is doing to this river and whatnot. And then it's like, we jump into this like city folk versus hillbillies things. And it's like, how is that really coming through? So that's a good point. I also have to say that was easily one of the best introductions to a movie we've ever had. I was not expecting the Jaws reference and that was amazing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I, this is my, another first time watch for me. I've also seen, you know, that Bravo countdown and it is excellent. I definitely watched it before I watched movies that I was too afraid to watch at times before. So um, prepare myself, but yeah, this was a movie that I'd, I'd heard a lot about. I've heard it, you know, just being so disturbing and chilling and brutal and, you know, I always thought it was like these four city guys against a bunch of rural rednecks folks. And, you know, I, it was a lot more condensed than I was expecting going in, um, in terms of those two sides kind of going at each other. Um, but yeah, in terms of like brutal, yeah, pretty brutal. Um, I think this, it's a pretty controversial film for a lot of reasons, including in particular, a rape scene um you know i i've seen a lot of like discourse about that first i find it interesting how like john borman and the cast kind of constructed that as a way of like we see this so often with female characters particularly with the character who it happens to saying like i don't want this going around that's something that hadn't pr been presented um happening to a male character before and so I think like Burt Reynolds always had the line that like, you know, women get this film quicker than men do oftentimes. And that's like really profound to think about that. Um, 
But overall, I really liked how it came about, you know, like you said, that kind of like documentary feel to it um, and how it just kind of descends into chaos pretty quickly and doesn't slow down from there. There's a scene where John Voight is like hunting down one of the guys who they think is the murderers. And that scene is just like amazing edge of my seat, like worried about what's going to happen. And then it, it comes together in a way that does feel so realistic and i do think it's very interesting how this film comes together in the end not really going to reveal what these characters decide and whatnot but this idea that even if we don't talk about it it still happened and it's still there and even if others don't know about it we do and that's going to haunt us um which is really profound and really kind of upsetting and traumatizing in a way but i really enjoyed it i thought i was like pretty entranced by it the entire time waiting to see what was going to happen to these guys. Are they going to make it out of this alive? And I thought John Voight's performance was really good. Not a huge fan of John Voight these days, but um, his performance I thought was really, really well done more than I was expecting. So he was the standout for me. <clears throat> it was fine. I knew it. I knew that was coming. I wasn't the biggest fan of this. I had seen it before, but I don't remember a thing. You obviously remember that whole dueling banjos squeal like a pig thing. Because again, the scariest movie moments, like you know what, what's happening. You know when this is coming. I think thinking back on it right now, my favorite parts of this were post that whole incident when they are hunting their assailants. Mm -hmm. It almost feels like the whole, um, I was thinking that the psycho pacing like the movie Psycho, spoiler alert, the movie's been out for 60 years, but after he kills Marion, there's this whole moment where it's just Norman cleaning up. There's like barely any talking, it's silent. And basically this is the same thing, where John Voight's going after the people, the hillbillies, and it's just him climbing the cliff, going out on his own while his friends are just like waiting for him. I like that, that's fine. Everything else was like either too intense for me which I'm not really, nothing's too intense for me in some movies. There are exceptions, of course. But sitting here, I watched it at like 8.30 in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's not a thing to drink your coffee to, let's say. And then the most funniest part was like when my mom came down, because she's working from home at this time, she turns at the TV and she said, oh, that's that The Deliverance movie. That's a sad movie. And I'm like, why do you know this movie? <laughs> so, but yeah, it was fine. I don't know. It, it's, yeah. And I kind of consider it a horror movie. It's definitely, I don't know. It's definitely man versus maybe themselves. I was yeah. sort of surprised. Yeah, and I have. I think there's this theme, like Brett was saying, that like you don't say what happened, you don't know, like, and I and I got that sense at the end with like the river is sort of knows the secrets here. Like you you shouldn't tell the police what actually happened. You shouldn't mm -hmm. talk about it with your families or each other. It's like whoever was there knew what happens, and the river, and and that's eventually going to go too. So those secrets are just going to be lost. Mm -hmm. um, I was surprised that the film continued after the climax because for a film that was so built on, you know, just hunting each other down, it was almost like not a slasher film, but at some point it was just people were getting picked off one by one. And it was, it ended up being, you know, John Voight versus this 
whatever local with a with a shotgun. Um, I didn't think that anything was going to continue, and then they did. There was like a police interrogation. There was a scene where they had to, you know, confront each other. There was Burt Reynolds in the hospital and a dinner table scene that I thought was actually quite powerful. I thought that was probably the most powerful scene in the film is when John Voight sort of just breaks down at the dinner table where he's unable to just fully, where he's first able to process everything that, that just went on and not able to just eat and be happy like everyone else. It takes him a second for reality to set in. Uh, I like that yeah. it let the film, the film let that scene breathe a little bit. Um, but I was surprised that it, it, it continued because it seemed like it had quite a direct goal. You know, we're just trying to get out of the woods. That's it. Doesn't, That's all it ever seemed like. It like doesn't right. leave you the ambiguity of what happens to them next. Exactly. It's like you get to see them go home and it's like, well, did anything happen out there, honey? It's like, no, yeah, we're fine. Yeah. Right. We only lost one of our friends along the way. But um, aside from that, it was all good, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I, I was the same way. Like I was expecting like either they would all die or they'd get out and they'd leave and it'd be done. And part of me, like, I wasn't sure how I felt about that. Cause I did, I also really liked the dinner table scene. That's a really, really powerful scene. But I'm also like, do I wish this ended a little bit more ambiguously? Like, do they even make out it, make it out of the forest once they, you know, get out and whatnot. And yeah, so I'm not, I wasn't sure how I, thought about that how i perceived it part of me was like there's some really good stuff here and part of me was like kind of wish it had just ended and left us to think about it but i i do want to mention something about the dueling banjos because this this seems to be like the thing when you you know like like uh christian said it's squeal like a pig and the dueling banjos that's deliverance in a nutshell yep. and i used to work at a record store apparently dueling banjos was a thing like after this film, people would buy the soundtrack to Deliverance. It was quite a popular seller and we would sell it at the store a lot. And I knew about doing banjos before I even knew about this film. Um, one thing that always stuck out was just the physical appearance of the, the kid who plays the banjo. Mm -hmm. I mean, he looks so different, I guess you would say. And um, I, I was looking up some facts about it. Uh, he didn't play the banjo. First of all, his name was Billy, Billy Redden. He was not a banjo player, didn't know how to play. And there was a real banjo player behind him using his arms to actually play the banjo. No. So some, yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> some some uh, movie magic trickery there. Very, uh, you know, very 1800s magic show-ish kind of thing. Um, but on a, on a sadder note, uh, or a more solemn note, I should say, uh, as of 2015, he was working at a Walmart in Clayton, Georgia. And he said that, quote, I'd like to have all the money I thought I'd make from this movie. I wouldn't be working at Walmart right now. And I'm struggling really hard to make ends meet. And I feel oh. so bad because he's got such a bad rep. You know, his character is this weird sort of creature that everybody thinks is like inbred or something. And he's not. He was just a normal kid in this film. And... It was, a, it was a very popular film, and his scene in particular is the most famous scene of the film. Yep. Uh, in fact, when people think of Deliverance, I often think that they probably think of his face um, first. Yep. And like, the I second I think of Deliverance, I think... And the best shot in the film for me, by the way, and I don't know if either of you care about this, 
is when they're going down the river and they see him on the bridge. Yeah. And there's a sort of moment where they're he he almost looks like he doesn't recognize them and they cross under him and he turns and he's still looking in this weird way. To me, that sums up the whole film. It's just uncomfortable. It's mm -hmm. like, have I seen you before? Do you know what you're heading into? And I think just that shot says a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Dueling Banjos, I think the first time, my first association with this film is when I was probably in like junior high, we had like a school talent show and this high school junior and our music instructor did dueling band banjos, like performed it for the talent show. It was really cool. And they introduced it and they said, this is from this film Deliverance. And I'm like, oh, what's this movie? Looked it up when I got home. Oh, wow, that sounds intense. Um, but yeah, no, dueling, it's a thing. I mean, it's really, you know, I would, I would agree with both of you. I think probably the first thing people think of when they think of this movie. Can I just say, have either of you seen the movie The Descent? No, I have not. Well, you both disappoint me. Uh, so watch it this October. For the people out there listening, if you have seen The Descent, it is about a group of women. Uh-huh. See where I'm getting here? There they go. go to an unexplored cave in the south, and the shit hits the fan. I think you put this on my ever-growing list of suggestions. I the did. But that was one of the fun facts I was going to write, but I was like, should I? But I just wanted to bring that up, that, like, look how influential Deliverance is, that it could, I don't know if it directly inspired The Descent, but it's very similar to The Descent. Yeah. Christian, you might hate this, but one of my favorite Deliverance references is the probably the best part of The Blind Side when there's this racist white guy with a long beard in the stands and he's like yelling at her son and she's like, hey, Deliverance, shut up. <laughs> Best part of the entire movie is a Deliverance reference. There you go. You're changing that boy's life. <laughs> no, he's changing mine. My God, that has not aged well, that film. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> um, yeah, should I get into the fun facts? Do yes. you want to keep talking about? Absolutely. Go ahead and jump into those fun facts there. Okay. All right. So fun facts. There were, this film was up for three Oscar noms, uh, best picture, best director, and best film editing. To save costs and add to the realism, local residents were cast in the roles of the Hill people. Even further, none of the actors were insured and did their own stunts. Fifth highest grossing movie, uh, sorry, fifth highest grossing film of 1972, about $46 million. Dueling Banjos was the first scene shot. Most of the film was shot in sequence. Because of this film tourism, tour, tourism in Raboon County, I'm gonna assume that's how you say it, Raboon County increased by the tens of thousands. In 2012, white water rafting developed as a $20 million industry in the region. Breakthrough role for Burt Reynolds, taking him from TV slash B-movie actor to superstar. Reynolds believed his nude centerfold in Cosmo cost him an Oscar nom. As then I say, wow. really though? Because uh, you were the best part. You and your, uh, you and your, what, your leather vest. And expositional dialogue. I think that cost him the <laughs> Oscar nom. Uh, Ned Beatty's film debut. Uh, one of my favorite character actors. I love Ned Beatty and pretty much everything he's in. Um, 
Reynolds had asked then Governor Jimmy Carter of Georgia to shoot the film there. After the film became a success, Carter and Reynolds helped co-fund the Georgia Film Commission, promoting the state to shoot more film and TV productions there. Which is interesting because now a lot of television production takes place in Georgia, specifically around the Atlanta area. But that's like that's like booming for production now. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's like every TV show you watch, that little damn peach is at the end of it. <laughs> Not to say that Georgia peaches are bad. Oh, we lost a Georgia audience. Mate, is that like in Georgia? I, was it Marvel shoot, shot there? No, The Walking Dead was there too. Right? Yeah, Marvel. Yep. Marvel also makes their films there. That's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. I think they give them a lot of tax breaks. That like Georgia and New sense. York are the best for tax, uh, you know, taxes for film. Um, Roger Ebert, our Lord, our Savior, didn't care <laughs> for the film, and said, "Quote." What the movie totally fails at, however, is its attempt to make any some kind of significant statement about its action. What James Dickey has given us here is a fantasy about violence, not a realistic consideration of it. Uh, I mean, I agree what he says about making a significant, failing to make a significant statement, but I don't think there was, a, I don't think they tried to make a statement about violence. I don't know how, yeah. how you do that. Uh, and then in season two episode of the Golden Girls, I feel like I shouldn't even be reading this fact because this is like hieroglyphics <laughs> to me. Uh, in the season two episode of the Golden Girls, Ladies of the Evening, Blanche mentions Burt Reynolds should have won for this film. He was not even nominated. And I'm going to add one more uh, fun fact here. I'm a huge uh, Howard Stern fan. Uh, and he has a extremely awkward interview with Ned Beatty where uh, the sound operator, Fred, who plays all their sound effects, would play the squeal like a pig constantly. So <sighs> when they interviewed Ned Beatty, they played it about seven times and he was not having it. In fact, I think at one point Howard Stern said, well, you're one hell of an interview, aren't you? Or something like that. It was an absolutely terrible interview, but figured it's worth mentioning for, wow. the, for the Baba Booey fans out there. I did read somewhere, I think that like Ned Beatty, since this was like his first film role, like for years after that, people would come up to him and just be like, squeal like a pig. And <laughs> oh man, poor guy, poor guy. <laughs> it's, it's hard to be remembered by that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Great. I knew him more from Roseanne than anything. I bet you're not alone in that. And He's now like, I know him from Toy Story 3. Yeah. I I <laughs> yep. Lots so of. That's Deliverance. Yeah, Deliverance. Uh, check it out if you, you know, when you're feeling like a, a really intense, brutal <laughs> survival movie <laughs> like this. Um, all right, Christian, would you like to take us away? Yes, for the best movie of the year, everybody. And that's, that's supposed to be fun because I'm the only one who liked it. All right, so our next film is called The Emigrants. It is a Swedish epic, yeah, directed by Jean Troll. I think that's how you pronounce that. Um, just the first fun fact I want to say is this film came out in 1971, was nominated for Best at the time. It was called Best Foreign Language Feature. And then it was nominated again the next year, which is the year we're talking about, for four more Oscars. So the Academy Awards were kooky like that, I guess, back in the day. <laughs> It also has a sequel to it. Um, but anyway, so this is a Swedish epic and it is based on a series of books called the Emigrant Series by Wilhelm Moberg. And it is about the Nielsen family, Carl Oscar, 
played by the late Max von Sydow, who we know from The Exorcist. Um, most recently, the last or the first Star Wars of the new series as well. For you kids out there. And Christina, his wife, played by Liv Ullman, a fam very famous Swedish actress as well. And so this is told, it is a three hour long movie. And so it is told basically in three different parts. So the first hour is this family in Sweden, their troubles, they live on a farm, the farm doesn't do so well, the crops die, the soil is not fertile at all. They're having a hard time. So in the second hour, they decide to make the journey to America along with uh, Carl Oscar's brother, Robert. His name is Eddie Axberg, the actor, another Swedish actor. So the second hour is basically them on the boat. Uh, yeah, this movie is again, three hours. I didn't have a problem with it like some people. <clears throat> yeah, Brett's raising his hand, Anthony raises his hand next. But we basically see the very hard times that they that many immigrants faced on the trip to America. It wasn't all fun and games, let's just say that. There's a whole scene about lice that is just, it breaks Christina down so much so that she's like on death's door halfway through this thing. And then the the later half of this finds them finally in America and what happens next, which is them going into this new area, which is now, I believe it's modern day Minnesota because there's a lot of Swedes up there. Yeah. And just a lot of shit happens to them. Nothing pretty much goes as it, like it is a hard journey to get to where they're needing to go. They go from basically the shit in Sweden to the shit in America. And it takes them a while. Because there's the one scene where she's like, you promised this, it would take this like 200 miles. It's 1200 miles. Like, welcome to a road trip, friends. <laughs> yeah. But this is The Immigrants and is the first part of two movies. There's a sequel that, called The New Land, which also came out in 1972. I am actually planning on watching it because I like this film enough. I don't know what it is. I like me a Swedish movie. My... I'm very limited because I've only seen mostly Ingmar Bergman's films. Sure. So I'm thinking that the reason I really like this was not just because of that, but because I like an epic that isn't boring. And okay, so I say that, so I'm wondering what you two think when I say an epic <laughs> that isn't boring, because I didn't find this boring at all. I found it fascinating. There is a film last year called A Hidden Life, which Brett and I unfortunately saw that is similar to this in terms of the first hour of this, where it's just basically they're on a farm living their life. There's not a whole lot of talking in this film as well, especially in that first hour. But it's like, you know what? I'm interested. Why are they leaving Sweden? Well, obviously because, you know, their farm sucks. But like, is there more to it? What's gonna happen in America? This boat sequence that Brett talked to me about, like how shitty is this journey? So, but I liked it. I thought everything about it was great. I'm not even I'm not even joking. Like I super like this. Max von Sydow is uh great as always. Liv Ullman is pretty fantastic. I'm pretty sure I've only seen her in one or two other things. Um and I really enjoyed Eddie Axberg, who is the brother. And there's one other actress, Monica Zetterlund, who's mm -hmm. her friend Ulrika. Yeah, she was also pretty great. She's um but yeah, I think I don't know. It's, it's an interesting film, and I almost compared it to my sense of when we did 1975 and when we talked about Barry Lyndon, how Brett was like, it's an okay film, and I liked it. Mm -hmm. And just to end on my little spiel, I shouldn't like a movie like this. A long, 
drawn out Swedish epic. And yet I'm kind of thinking about, I want to buy the criterion of it. Wow. It's yeah. A, it's a box set with this and the sequel, isn't it? Like I think. It, yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. So I am an immigrant's apologist here. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony, I'm going to, I think you should go next. Cause I'm pretty sure I'm going to be like right in the middle of you two. So. Okay. Yeah. I'm pretty extreme the other way. Um, it was boring as hell. I'm sorry. I couldn't get through it. I tried. I did it. I mean, I watched the film, you know, the film. It was, you know, get on a boat, get, you're on the boat, and then you're off the boat. I mean, that's pretty much like you said. I felt it was structured in those three acts. No, I can't take anything away from it creatively. There were, there were good shots. Um, the acting was great. I do like Liv Ullman a lot. I've seen her in a few other things. I feel like she's the sort of like figurehead of Swedish actresses around that era, specifically like the 70s. Um, I have a few notes written down about it. There were only a few things that really sort of hit me emotionally. And all of them happened on the boat. The boat was the most interesting part of it all for me. Uh, you know, the stakes were much higher um and with our with our lead um i'm sorry i'm blanking on her name but Liv allman's character christina 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 being sick sort of that, that was huge and and there was a there was a shot there was a scene there where she said quote i can't see where to vomit in this darkness that line for some mm. reason was 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 pretty big uh it was just difficult to to watch um, but overall, I didn't see anything larger than a story that we've seen a million different times in various ways, told more condensedly. I mean, this isn't the first time that anyone who's come to America has had difficulty coming to America, especially in that era. I feel like we've heard this before and seen this before in better ways. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm like right in the middle here in terms of the reception of this. Uh, I just want to know, I mean, let me start this way. Anybody who knows a lot about my taste in film, Christian, knows that like I have a, a bit of an aversion to really long movies, specifically like over two hours and 45 minutes. I love some, The Godfather we're going to get to, love it. Spoiler alert. Uh, basically any film by Martin Scorsese, most of them I love. But I do come into those films with like a, a, an idea of like, you better make this worth the length. And, you know, at times, at times this did. One thing I definitely agree on is the boat scene, the boat sequence being undoubtedly the best part of the movie. In fact, I think the boat sequence is pretty great. I mean, like from the time they get on the boat to the time they dock in the U.S., I ate it up, um, you know, from... You know, like you said, Liv Ullman's character being sick to the drama between Liv Ullman's character and Monica Zitterland's character because, you know, Liv Ullman thinks that she knows she got lice and she thinks she gets it from this other woman. And this other woman is like, no, like, don't don't bring me into this. And so you've got this I, these ideas about like people dying. You've got children dying. You've also got tempers flaring because we're all in this very claustrophobic space. And I don't think there's any like wide sweeping shots of the boat, like in the water. And it's really effective because it feels very, very claustrophobic on that boat. Um, but yeah, 
the scenes before that could have definitely been condensed, I think, um, significantly. Like, especially like the scene of like getting to know the uncle. I don't really need to know all that. You can just show me a few of these hard times are going through and let's get on that boat and get to the good stuff. Um, that's kind of how I thought about it. I do agree the acting is pretty awesome here. Um, in particular, Liv Ullman and Monica Zetterlund. I thought they were both pretty great. I've seen Liv Ullman in like, um, obviously, Persona and Cries and Whispers, you know, her films with Bergman. And yeah, she's, she's always great every time I see her. So um, that's no different here. The third act, once we finally get to America, I, you know, it's, it's fine for me. I think, you know, it also could have been condensed here and there, but overall, like I said, I'm right in the middle. Part of me is like, this is really long and I feel it completely. And I do find it very dull at times, but there are also those moments that I find pretty great. And I do think it's really well shot and it does have some great aspects to it. The scene where they can't find the kid before the boat leaves again for the- That's terrifying. That yeah. is, that's a really good scene. That is like, I can feel that it's very That palpable. whole scene, I'm like, could you imagine if, so basically, cause I know a lot of people probably won't watch this, <laughs> but basically they can't find their daughter right before the boat leaves. Uh, there's a second boat, it takes them down the river pretty much to where they're going to go. And they can't find her and they're scurrying because the boat is about to take off. And obviously they don't speak English this time. Mm -hmm. You have to think to yourself, because um, Carl Oscar tells his wife pretty much, get back on the boat, I'll go find her. But if that boat would have left and he wouldn't be able to get back on the boat, it wouldn't have been like, well, I'll find you down the river. It would have been a whole series of now we're in 2020. Let's say this is a true story saying, yeah, my grandfather and grandmother lost each other. Mm -hmm. It would yeah. have been one of those situations. Like they could never find each other again. Because you're in this new land. You are, you are an immigrant. You don't even speak the language of like the common people, which is English here. Mm -hmm. So that was a scary part. There was no, I thought there would have been some sort of like compromise between, between Christina and uh, Ulrika, I guess is how you pronounce uh, that character's name, mm -hmm. who finds the child. Because, you know, there's sort of tension with them on the boat and then she kind of saves her child's life in a way and reunites this family and there was no sort of acknowledgement. I was, I was kind of surprised because they had this like, on and off relationship and there's a lot of tension between them and this big moment happened and there was no nobody addressed it really which i was surprised um yeah. surprised by but i did i did really i do want to mention that i really enjoyed the progression of the character daniel who's played by alan edwell he's christina's uncle like i guess he's like the sort of the preacher character in the film uh he went through an interesting metamorphosis out of all the characters i thought that he changed the most in a in a sort of difficult somber way but an interesting way to watch yeah definitely i do want to note that on imdb it says this film is two and a half hours long that is a lie or it's a different cut because it is over three hours just want to put that out there in case you're like me and check the link of movies before you watch them so that as actually the americanized edit with the what is the english dub Oh yeah, no, don't watch that anyway. That's so if you're ever, I mean, if you ever do want to, that's the version that for some reason Turner Classic Movie shows. Yeah, see, even then, I would take the longer version over watching an English dub version. That's right. yeah. 
I'm like, I'm going to do this in the original language it was meant for. Right. But yeah, Christian, do you want to run over our fun facts for this one? Yes, there are not many. So here we go. Nominated for four Oscars, Best Picture, Best Director for John Troll, Best Actress for Liv Ullman, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Like I said, this is also nominated for foreign language film in 1971. And alongside the sequel, The New Land, both of these films were nominated at the same Oscars. The only time a film and its sequel were nominated in the same year. It is based upon the first two books of the Immigrant series, which I said, the next movie is the next two books. So there's four books, which is also probably why it's long because you're covering yeah. two books here. Yeah, that's where um, it starts. At the, at the time, this is the most expensive Swedish film produced. I didn't even look up what the most expensive, but I can only imagine it's probably Fanny and Alexander because that's a huge epic in and of itself. Um, Stanley Kubrick, there you go, Anthony. A was a deep admirer of the film. And much of the second half of the film was filmed in Sweden because locations here in the United States were too developed. Mm. And I didn't put this, but most likely the story of Rose Nyland in the Gold Coast. <laughs> <laughs> because she's always talking about Minnesota. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. This is one, I, I will say, Christian, you mentioned A Hidden Life. I did get some Terrence Malick themes, feelings from this here and here and there. Um, and yeah, so I, I do think it's an, it, it's a good story to tell, um, could have been condensed obviously, but it's there if you want to check it out. Christian highly recommends. So any further thoughts on that before we jump into our next one? I do have two notes that I want to say about it. Two things that I wrote down as I was watching the film. Um, it's very effective as a three hour advertisement for birth control. I've never... <laughs> wanted to just not be involved in that scene more um and in the original you know in the in the introduction of the film when they were saying who lived in this in this town uh they sort of went through the numbers and the last uh statistic that they wrote was there were three idiots three whores and two thieves which I was wondering if they got from our current administration. I wasn't know if they were talking about them or the people in this town. I just figured I'd mention that something that stuck out. <laughs> there we go. Amazing. All right. So we've got one more nominee before our best picture winner and it is Sounder. Uh, so this is based on the novel that came before it. Um, I'm trying to think of who it was written by. That will come up. Um, <laughs> but it's the story of a black sharecropper family living in the Depression era South. Um, the kind of most central character is um, the oldest son of this family. Here, his name is David, David Lee. Um, in the book, I don't think he's, anybody's given a name, so that's a little bit different here. Um, but basically, they're living on um their farm and you know in really ah there we go william h armstrong writer of the novel thank you um and they are you know they're in hard times it's obviously the depression so they're struggling with finances they're struggling with having food and things take a turn where the father is imprisoned for stealing food for his family and so um they go through a number of years it seems without the father there the son goes out to try to find where he's imprisoned and they have no idea where he's at. 
So it's kind of an indictment of that system at, at the time and something that's still very relevant today, obviously. Um, I haven't mentioned yet, Sounder is the dog in the film who kind of has a connection to the father character who's played by Paul Winfield. And so um, they kind of have that connection there. And the dog is one who kind of disappears for a while after the father is taken away and comes back later on as well. Cicely Tyson plays the mother of the family here. I think, you know, she's personally my favorite performance in the film. I think she does pretty good work here. Um, she's really that strong parental figure in hard times. Um, but overall, you know, I think this is a good film. I think, you know, it's not, I think of it as good, not great. Um, it does some interesting things. It tells a story that is not quite often told. But I think, you know, there's just, there's something that, you know, it, it doesn't, extends into great territory for me and um you know it does appear to be somewhat low budget the way it's shot so i think it's really kind of interesting that you know kind of cool if this got nominated for best picture i also just like i read the book in sixth grade and for some reason i remember it pretty well and there are a lot of things in this movie that are quite different from the book and i think often for the worse um this movie's a lot more lighthearted than the book. I'll start there. Um, also, Sounder the dog, I, his role in this movie is like very, very limited. And I don't remember that being the case with the book. So it kind of makes sense since it is the titular character. Um, but I think, you know, I read that this was kind of a response to the black exploitation films at that time. So I think this was a case of the studio glamorizing things and making it a little bit more happier for the audiences. And so I think that's the biggest thing that keeps it from being, you know, great for me instead of merely just a good, enjoyable, nice family film. Um, yeah, there's my thoughts. What do you guys think? <clears throat> it's fine. <laughs> there you go. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I also read this book in fifth grade and I have, I wouldn't say it's a traumatic experience, but my fifth grade teacher's husband passed away when we were reading this. Ooh. And when she came back, we were reading the end. And if you know the ending of the novel, totally different. I will spoil it, I guess. But the father does die, mm -hmm. as does Sounder, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah and, and that's like that connection because the father dies, and I'm pretty sure Sounder dies like right after. Right? Mm -hmm. And she started to break down, and I was the one to... She was like, Christian, can you finish the book? And I'm like, yeah. And so I read it out loud. So, um, but no, it's, it's fine. I was expecting more from Cecily Tyson, like a lot more meatier scenes, you know? I didn't get that. I got a lot out of the kid, though, in this. Um, Kevin Hooks. Kevin Hooks, yeah. Um, I actually got a lot out of, out of him. And Janet McLaughlin as Camille, <laughs> who's like a teacher, she's in it for like five minutes. But... I don't know. There was just something about her. She has a good scene. Um, Paul Winfield is weirdly cast as like an actor in this when he should have been like supporting character yeah. for the Oscars. But yeah, I just wish that this was focused more on the effect of Sounder and the family. But I kind of understand like what Brett said. It's, it's a response to the black exploitation films and it's a more positive look at an African-American family during this time than like a pimp or something. Right. Because that's, I mean, basically, like we got Foxy Brown. We got what's the one we picked? Like Superfly. Superfly. Next. Yeah, we'll be watching that. So, but no, it's fine. I don't know. I wasn't that impressed with it, and I sort of, 
I sort of wavered. Did I like this less than Deliverance or did I like Deliverance less? But I think I like Deliverance more than this. And it's a, I don't know, it's a cute film. It's a weird choice for a nomination. It's kind of a family film. It's a, fa- yeah. it's a weird family film yeah. to be here, but. Yeah. I agree. It sticks out from the nominations for sure. And like Brett said, in a sort of almost low budget kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I agree also with the consensus that it's good, not great. It wasn't by any means a, a boring film or, or a bad film. Uh, I do think that I was most interested in the supporting characters, I guess. I mean, if Cicely Tyson is considered our protagonist, I would say that, like like uh, Christian said, Janet McLaughlin was a really strong supporting character. Also, uh, Mrs. Boatwright, Carmen Matthews as Mrs. Boatwright had some pretty interesting scenes. And uh, what I what I found interesting, and I have a note written down here, is that, you know, she seems to be like the sort of one person who's really on like this family's side. Mm-hmm. And uh, for a second, you're like, wow, you know, she's the least racist out of all the people in this town. Uh, yep. But but she was an interesting character. And uh, the film really made me, the beginning of the film really put an emphasis on this dog. I was like, wow, so this is going to be like an old yeller type of, no. I mean, what happens to the dog is absolutely terrible. The first 15, 20 minutes of it, you know, the dog gets shot and is bleeding and then he kind of just disappears and he comes back, but that's it. That's it. There's mm-hmm. nothing else. There's no sort of like larger piece. It becomes way more about the father and the son than it does, which I prefer. It was just sort of misleading. So the title of the film is the name of yeah. the animal that isn't, a, isn't emphasized at all. I'm trying to think as like, I don't think he's a MacGuffin, but like why even have the name still sounder? If they're not going to focus on him. Yeah, That's you know, it, I don't know. It's different than something like, you know, the Maltese Falcon, where like the Maltese Falcon is the top of film and it's a bit of a MacGuffin, but it's still so meaningful to like progressing the plot. Whereas like Sounder here, I, I just don't find the dog that meaningful in the story. I mean, it, there's just not much going on there. So, other than him being a symbol of his father while his father is incarcerated that's the only thing i can understand is like he loses his father and he loses the dog all at once yeah and at least having the dog is a reminder that you know there's hope that he'll still be able to make this journey to see his dad other other than that i really am not sure what the significance of the dog would be right i honestly i honestly think that this that i don't know it would be a little bit more personal if none of these characters had names like they don't in the book and it was just sounder as the only named character in terms of the family Mm -hmm. yeah that is kind of a significant aspect of the book too um because like like yeah they're like the it's told from the perspective of the young boy in the book and it's you know mom and dad and so on so forth and and whatnot so yeah, interesting stuff. Um, interesting nominee for sure. Uh, but this one, it was directed by Martin Ritz, who immediately comes to mind. I think he did like Norma Ray and HUD. And so he has done some pretty significant films. Um, it did get four Oscar nominations, Best Picture, Actress for Cicely Tyson, um, Actor for Paul Winfield, definitely Category Fraud. Um, and Tyson might be as well. Um, and adapted screenplay, but this is the first time two black actors were nominated in the same year. 
And then we also had Diana, Diana Ross there. So, um, along with Diana Ross and the Lacey and Blues, Ross and Tyson became the first two African-American women to be nominated the same year, same category, based on the Newbery medal-winning novel, like we mentioned. Uh, many scenarios from book to film were changed, particularly the focus shifting from Sound of the Dog to the family and their daily survival, which is kind of where you know, some of our criticism comes in to a degree. Uh, this was praised and welcomed by audiences for being an antidote to many black films that were low quality and exploitive like Superfly, Shaft, black quotation films and whatnot. The marketing strategy of the film was aimed at major cities with large religious organizations and schools and it was endorsed by the Catholic Film Office and it was successful financially. It was the 10th highest grossing film of 1972. Another fun fact that I remembered is I had seen a different version of Sounder that was made for like Wonderful World of Disney on ABC. And it was actually directed by Kevin Hooks, um, who plays the young boy here. And that version was a lot more faithful to the novel, but it was like a made for TV thing. So, wow, interesting. Yeah, I think it was like 2002 or something that came out. So, out there somewhere. All right. The time has arrived for the big one. And this year, Best Picture went to, of course, The Godfather. Um, obviously, major film directed by Francis Ford Coppola. This film follows the Corleone crime family in New York. Um, it takes place right after World War II. And they're led by Don Vito Corleone, um, who's played by Marlon Brando. He is the leader of the family. They are one of the like five major crime families in the city. Um, they, you know, they work with corrupt politicians and, you know, complete things for people that come to their attention, which is actually where we kind of begin the film. But a lot of it is following the decisions made by this family, particularly Don Vito Corleone and his son, Michael, who is played by Al Pacino. Um, and there's a bit of a controversy between them two and their Oscar categories that we'll get to as well. Uh, but there's a lot going on here. You know, um, Don Vito is, has this, you know, offer to take up um, the narcotics trade, which he is very much against, and a lot of people aren't fans of that. There are attempts on his life. And so it kind of shifts in being, you know, this, this film about how Don Vito runs the family to Michael, his son, kind of coming into the family because he is introduced as a World War II hero veteran. He's just coming back. He's not really part of the family business and doesn't really have plans to be. But then once we have some attempts on Don Vito's life, he kind of takes it upon himself to get involved and eventually has a very major role within the crime family. Um, this isn't epic. It is about three hours long. I don't think that's a problem at all here. Unlike with the immigrants, I love pretty much every minute of this movie. Sorry to be if this is boring, but I really, honestly, I don't have many critiques of this movie. I think it's honestly incredible. It gets better every time I've watched it. And I think I've seen it probably three or four times. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with the consensus here. I think it's a classic. I think it's pretty much a masterpiece um you know as far as like taking on taking the gangster film onto a new level based on what we'd seen earlier from like the 1930s and whatnot it was so influential in that way it's well shot coppola's direction is fantastic 
Um, the cinematography is amazing. I think the opening shot, like you can tell right from the beginning, it's, it's incredible. The score is awesome. I really wish it would have been eligible for the Oscars because it's amazing too. Uh, do I think it's the number two best film ever, like the AFI says on their list? You know, maybe not. Um, it's definitely not one of my top five or top 10 favorites or anything. But I really, I don't have much complaint with this film. I think it's just pretty flawlessly crafted. I think the story is very interesting from beginning to end. And we've got to talk about the damn baptism scene because that is truly one of the best scenes ever filmed. So there's, I don't really have much to add there. So I'll let you guys start and take it away with where you want to go here. Well, uh, I don't think it's, it's not my favorite film, but I think it's the greatest film ever made. Um, I have to agree with, with those lists. And I usually don't, I mean, Citizen Kane, I, I respect it, but it's never been up there for me as the greatest, but I do think Same. that this is the greatest film ever made from all aspects of it. The cast is exceptional. The cinematography is wonderful. Um, the, 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 the sort of subtleties of the film, uh, you know, there are scenes that everyone points to like, the baptism scene, the wedding scene, you know, the restaurant scene. These are things that everybody thinks of, but the hospital scene is like one of my favorite scenes in the whole film. Yeah. And there are these moments that you sort of forget because you're bogged down by all the classic lines and, and, and great cultural references that we hear so much that to watch the film from beginning to end sort of like watching it for the first time every time for me, because although there are a lot of moments that everyone can point to, there are those hidden gems. Um, I think that overall, you know, Gordon Willis's cinematography really, really sells this film for me. He's known as the Prince of Darkness. He's the use of shadows and all that. Um, never is that more clear than in the opening shot. I remember, you know, seeing this on a Blu-ray copy and, uh, having tried to watch it a few times before that was difficult because the resolution was never good enough. Like mm -hmm. old VHS copies or old DVD copies of this movie, they were hard to see because mm -hmm. everything was so dark. Uh, but I got a chance to see it on the screen twice in the last six years. And um, it's exceptional, exceptional. I mean, you can study every scene of this film for a different reason. You know, the restaurant scene has the greatest sound design I've ever heard. Um, the, you know, the, the, the baptism scene has some of the greatest editing I've ever seen. Uh, other scenes have some of the best cinematography. So you, overall, it's a masterpiece. And I mean, you're not saying anything that anybody hasn't already said, you know, smarter men haven't said 10 times over. So it's hard to really add to what they have to say, but I certainly have to agree. <clears throat> Fine. <laughs> I knew that I was going. No, no. Take it back. Take it back. No, I love it. I used to think, I actually used to think it's it was a good movie at one point to me. Like, it's good. It's fine. It's a little overrated, blah, blah, blah. But like, Brett, as you keep watching it, and I watched it, I've watched it twice this year. This is my first film of 2020. And then I watched it for this. It's like, yes, I love this. Like, I actually do love this. This is top 100 for me easily highly influential to a hell of a lot of other movies that came after it. A lot of TV shows too. I have some things in the facts, but no, it's, it's incredible. And like Anthony said, what else is there to say? Yeah. Everything has been said in the what 40, almost 50 years that this has been out. So 
that's it. That's my take. And that, okay, the baptism scene, I will say, fucking great. Yeah, I mean, that, like, like for real, like, possibly, like, best editing I've ever seen yes. in a movie. I mean, just the way, it, it's not, you know, it's not just juxtaposing a baptism and these killings. It's There's a lot of meaning behind it. A lot of the shots are constructed the same way, so it does have that natural flow as it cuts back and forth between these two instances. It's incredible. I mean, it's a, it's a scene I've probably seen, I don't know, 10 times just for the number of times it was shown in film school and, you know, seeing analyses on YouTube and things like that. It's, it's incredible. It's like, that's one of the things, like, if you don't like the Godfather, okay, sure. You know, present your argument. That's fine. If you don't appreciate that scene though, like, come on, you know, it's amazing. Uh, Modern Family does the best like interpretation of that scene. <laughs> did I show that to you? You did. Yeah, okay. it's very funny. It's very, very good. <laughs> I also do want to mention it's sort of a pet peeve of mine how it's always lumped in with Godfather Two, even on these lists. It's like Godfather Part One and Two. They are separate films, and I know there are many people who prefer the sequel, um, just in the sense of you know De Niro's character. But I cannot. This film is amazing. I can't rank it over the second. For me, this one is classic. Definition of a classic film when you think of something that you can get anybody to watch and pretty much enjoy. There are certain people who don't like black and white films and, and things like that, but I think most people, you know, length would be the only thing that's the deterrent. I think most people you show it to would agree and say, wow, this is classic in every sense. I got my parents to watch this on my second time this year. Ooh. Yes, because I mean, they were, I was in the living room watching it and they were just eating breakfast and they got into it enough that I'm like, you might as well just stay and finish this. There's another hour and a half left. Yeah, there's a lot that I think you could pull out between like this film and what this film is saying about America. Uh, I don't normally do this, so bear with me, but when I took a class in undergrad about like 70s film and I still have the books from that class. And this book has like a really great quote from Francis Ford Coppola. And I'm just going to cite that real quick. But he said, I always wanted to use the mafia as a metaphor for America. Both America and the mafia have their hands stained with blood from what it is necessary to do to protect their power and their interests. Both are totally capitalistic phenomena and basically have a profit motive. And I'm like, the ways that he thinks to show that in the film, both like narratively and visually, like there's a shot where there is an, an assassination in a car and the Statue of Liberty is in the background. And that's one of my favorite shots in the film, just because like you're drawing between these two, but also presenting it from a very particular lens. Um, and it's just really, really fascinating how they kind of draw those two together and kind of comment on that. I also want to say, yeah, I mean, there's this sense of being involved in something that obviously you don't want to be involved in with Michael, you know, he's this mm -hmm. he's thrown into this world. Do you accept the America that you're thrown into? Do you accept the family that you've been, you know, that you're attributed to? And obviously there's some reluctance, especially in the beginning, which prov provides such a great, simple to understand uh, conflict, you know, where everyone can relate to that to a certain extent. I mean, maybe more so me with the Italian lineage, you know, I'm not going to them off or anything, but there is this sort of guilt where it's like, are you going to do it? Are you, are you going to help? And you're like, well, I, I guess. 
And yeah. Michael is in this terrible, terrible uh, predicament. But he's actually not my favorite character. I have to give props here. And I know he gets a lot more screen time in a second. My personal top five favorite, favorite actors of all time, John Cazale, the character of Fredo Corleone, even in the first movie. I know he's emphasized way more in the second. Even in the first movie, shines through and breaks my heart in every scene. He's such an idiot that you have to love him. <laughs> he really is. And there's just nothing, I, I just, I can sympathize with every decision that that guy makes. Um, you know, even from not being able to catch the gun as as his father is, is getting shot. It's just, it's just terrible. But, uh, you know, he's the older brother and he was stepped over. Yeah. And you think about the situations he's thrown into as well, um, where he kind of has those pressures coming from all areas. It is, it is kind of palpable and can kind of empathize with that. I like the character of uh, Kay, Diane. Yeah, Kay too. Adams. Because she's like, at the beginning of this, Michael, he doesn't seem like he wants to be a part of this side of the family, or he's not ready to take over. But then once that assassination happens, the assassination attempt, it's like, well, who else is, who, who are our options here? We have Sonny, who's a loose cannon. We have Fredo, who, I mean, hell, like Anthony said, he dropped the gun to save his own father. And now we have Michael and Michael's going like, he's gone, he comes back, Kay's thrown into this world. And then that fucking shot of the closing door in her mm -hmm. is like, she yeah. now knows what the hell's happening behind that door. She, yeah. knows, she knows what she signed up for. And then she has the great scene in the second one, which I'm not spoiling that, but it's like, I, I can quote that scene very well. <laughs> Well, it's such a great way to close the film because it, it ties it all the way back to the very beginning of the movie with Don Vito sitting in that chair and, you know, how he kind of operated. And yeah, I love the quote where Kay and Michael are talking about his father's business. And Michael, I think he says something along the lines of like, he just does what any other man in power would do. And She's like, well, politicians and congressmen don't kill people. And Michael says, well, now who's being a naive K? And whoa, truth <laughs> bomb there. <laughs> but it is interesting to see how those men in power are kind of, you know, compared, contrasted within the film. It's like everybody in this is a complex character. Yeah, absolutely. Even if it doesn't look like it, somebody's complex. Even Luca Brasi just can't understand, can't figure out how to say that phrase. <laughs> Everyone's conflicted. I love it. Yeah, great performances all around. Um, I got so I feel like we got to address Marlon Brando and Al Pacino at the Oscars. So Marlon Brando won Best Actor for this, um, and. You know, there was some controversy about, you know, some category fraud here. Al Pacino actually did not attend because he was put in supporting rather than lead. Uh, what are your thoughts? Category fraud? Major case of that? I think he's a supporting Ooh. character. Michael or uh, Vito? Uh, Michael, I'm sorry. Oh, interesting. Okay. Christian? No. I, <laughs> I, I object. <laughs> I think that Al Pacino should have been lead and Marlon Brando supporting. And it's not the whole time difference that because Al Pacino is in this more. It is the fact that the Godfather, though Marlon Brando is the image of the look of this particular movie, the name The Godfather 
is in association with both him, but more importantly, Michael, because it is Michael's upbringing as the godfather, the head of the Corleone family. And therefore, I win the argument. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I understand that Michael is the character that goes through the obvious sort of like arc Mm -hmm. of the film. You know, he's the one who has the most writing on it. And in many ways, he is on par, at least, with with Brando. Um, But I don't think it's fraud to say that Brando was, was a lead. I mean, it's it's a hard thing because you have two people who are basically almost equal. You know, it's like it's like John Voight and uh, Dustin Hoffman, both in Midnight Cowboy, both nominated for the same role. It can it can easily be, and in an ensemble piece like this, anyone can be a supporting member. I mean, you know, you have Tom Hagen, you have Robert Duvall as Tom Hagen, you have all these wonderful people as supporting cast. So where do you draw the line with supporting cast? Because it could just go on and on. Yeah. I've struggled a lot with it. I think most often I lead, I lean Brando supporting Michael lead, but it's hard because like Brando is also like, yes, Michael is the Godfather in the movie, but at the same time, like when I hear Godfather, I see Marlon Brando, you know? Right. So like, it is part of that, like his image being attached to the film. I can see why he, he was put in the lead category. Absolutely. So. Plus, it's like Brando has this star status yes. of old Hollywood still that, yeah, let's put him in lead. This new kid, Pacino, supporting. Yeah, they, they didn't know what was coming yet. So, no, maybe they should have. Um, but yeah, great stuff all around. You also had Marlon Brando, who had probably was responsible for one of the most significant and controversial Oscar moments of all time. Um, I mean, we're kind of getting into trivia here, but did not accept the award. Like, not only didn't show up, like, refused the award um, and sent Sashin Littlefeather to um, basically say that he was refusing to accept based on the treatment of Native Americans in the film industry. And Christian, I know you're interested in doing a little research on how this came about. Did you find anything on what he stated as the reasons behind that? I mean, basically, it was because of um, an incident at Wounded Knee that happened a month or so prior to the Oscars. And it was basically a, a siege where, uh, let's see, the Oglala Lakota versus the United States of America, mm-hmm. basically. Um, and then of course the treatment of Native American portrayals in Hollywood productions, because it has never been a very good portrayal. Right. Um, Sashin Littlefeather knew Coppola who introduced her to Brando and Brando was like, why don't you go to the Oscars for me? That's not how he actually talked. But yeah, and then she accepted the award or whatever on his behalf and the producers were like, you have 60 seconds to say your piece or else. And she got blacklisted after that because she wanted to be an actress. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me just say these two things. Brando, and I watched this before we started recording here, but Brando talked to Dick Cavett I, uh, like a few months later, and he said that he was distressed that people should have booed and whistled and stomped, even though perhaps it was directed at myself. So not at her, but at Brando for what he, you know, what he sent her there for. Um, and then also Brett and I watched the videos, but when Liza's category was coming up for best actress and Raquel Welch, Raquel Welch was the presenter. She said, I hope the winner doesn't have a cause. And it's like, 
okay, Shade, first of all. <laughs> and then Clint Eastwood comes out for Best Picture and basically says, on behalf of all the Cowboys shot in John Ford Westons over the years. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it was controversial from all directions. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Very inter- Very fascinating Oscar trivia there. Um and whatnot. And I mean, after this, Marlon Brando, you know, he did this in Last Tango in Paris. And I mean, did he do anything significant after that? Oh, I mean, Apocalypse Now. Oh, know. Apocalypse Now. I always forget about that because he's not in it for very long. But <laughs> we're good that, yeah, you're right. Um, but yeah. So this did have three Oscar wins. Obviously, Best Picture, Marlon Brando for Best Actor. And it did take adapted screenplay for Mario Puzo. Um, three additional nominations, or sorry, seven additional nominations. There were three su- for supporting actor for James Caan, Robert Duvall, and Al Pacino all got in. Um, and obviously Coppola for director, costume design, sound, and film editing. I so I wish I could know how they gave Cabaret so many. I'm like, I'm not complaining. It just, what changed their mind and then changed it back to this? Yeah, I don't, I've always wondered that too. Because on one hand, like, it's not like a case of like gravity where like the technical aspects are obviously so huge that you give it seven Oscars. I mean, like a lot of those definitely could have gone to the Godfather. So I've always been curious about how Cabaret just, just pretty much swept a lot of those categories. I'm not as an editor. I am not sure how this film did not win best editing. That's the one I just can't wrap my head around, you know, um, sound design, it makes a little more sense for Cabaret, although I think The Godfather had exceptional sound design, but film editing, my God, the tension that's in between the shots of this film is incredible, specifically the restaurant scene. I mean, that is probably one of the most tense scenes I've ever seen. And the hospital scene, uh, I just want to mention very quickly, has my favorite shot in film history, where uh, Al Pacino sort of just sticks his head out behind the door really slowly. That is the most tense shot I've ever seen in a film. Yeah, I agree. That That is an amazing shot. But I'm also looking here like, you're telling me this wasn't nominated for Best Cinematography? Like, like what? what is up with that? What? That makes no sense whatsoever. Wow. Um, I also want to, yeah, want to mention, let me see if we have it in the facts here. Um, yeah, but just skipping down a little bit, it was originally nominated for score for Nina Rota. Um, it was de- later declared ineligible because it reused part of the score from another film, Fortunella, and it was replaced in the category by Sleuth, which is unfortunate in my opinion because it, it is obviously a great score, um, and they always have weird ineligibility rules anyway. So I also say that The Godfather Part Two is not nominated for cinematography as well. Oh my god! <laughs> and it has the this great. Is just- Statue of Liberty when uh, Vito's coming into America. It makes no sense whatsoever. <sighs> wow. Did they just like hate the cinematographer? It, like, do they have a vendetta against him? I, I can't think of anything else. A vendetta? Look at those Italian words. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, trivia where to start, Christian says. Well, for one thing, Paramount did not want either Coppola or Brando in any way. Coppola was frequently at odds with the studio because of his inability to stay on schedule, unnecessary expenses, and production and casting errors. And Brando had not made a box office hit in some time. Thank you, Mutiny on the Bounty, a film we talked about in another episode earlier in this podcast. Um, 
It says your Brando would quit if Coppola was fired and replaced by Elia Kazan, which is interesting because that's who he won his first Oscar with. But but the reasoning is the whole House on American Activities thing and Elliot yep. talked. Yep, makes sense. Uh, Paramount wanted the film set in contemporary Kansas City. And filmed, there we go. Filmed in studio to cut down on costs. In the end, it was shot in NYC and surrounding suburbs using over 120 unique locations. I have to ask, Anthony, have you ever been to any of the locations? Yeah, the, the shot that... Um... Brett was referencing where um, someone's assassinated with the Statue of Liberty in the background. That's not far. Is that the leave the gun, take the cannoli? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, most of the most of the film, and I think the house was on one of the islands, Long Island, Staten Island, one of the mm-hmm. islands. Um, so most of it does take place there. There's not too too much that takes place in New Jersey, but I believe that scene was where you could see the Statue of Liberty from a distance. Um, early buzz was so positive. A sequel was planned before this was even finished. Um, Pacino boycotted the Oscars because of his supporting nomination, obviously. George Lucas put together the mattress sequence as thanks for Coppola helping fund American Graffiti, his Oscar-nominated film. Uh, Stanley Kubrick thought the film had the best cast ever. High praise from one of the best. When the film premiered on TV in 1974, New York City had overflow issues for many toilets. <laughs> How weird. They showed it on NBC, too. It's like the violence would, wouldn't even get past today. It'd be like cut out. Uh, the slow camera movement that opens the film was used by a recently invented computer timed lens that was programmed for specific time increments. Uh, Brando famously snubbed his win for this, sending Sashin Littlefeather to represent him at the awards. We kind of went over that. After Marlon Brando's death, his annotated script sold for $12,800 at auction. Uh, people considered for Vito Corleone, other than Brando, were Ernest Borgnine, uh, Edward G. Robinson, Orson Welles, Don Amici, Carlo Ponti, Frank Sinatra, and Burt Lancaster. Quite the crew of folks. I like how you said Frank Sinatra. And I just put Sinatra as if yeah. he was his first name. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, Elvis auditioned for the role of Tom Hagen, which is really weird. To that is really, he really wanted the lead role. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, bro, I'm making off your camera views. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I wanted to mention also about the casting. There are some great, there's some great casting footage from this film that was uh, on one of the original DVD box sets, but I'm sure on every subsequent re-release on Blu-ray, where they have Robert De Niro auditioning for the role of Sonny. Mm. Pacino takes a stab at Sonny. Um, there's original footage of him and Kay, uh, of Pacino and Kay and Diane Keaton working together. There's some really great audition footage that exists for this film that's, that's available awesome. for everyone to see. So I would check that out. That's awesome. There's, it is obviously a great cast. So there's also, um, and it came out a few years ago because I was looking because I was like, I should buy this finally. The Godfather Notebook, which is basically Coppola's annotated script. Oh, yeah. I think I've heard of that. That's interesting. Um, yeah, cinematographer Gordon Willis, who was snubbed at the Oscars, insisted every shot represents a POV setting. Uh, setting the camera about four feet from the ground, except the orange shooting scene. As according to Coppola, it's from God's point of view. Interesting. 
It was the highest grossing film of 1972 and the highest grossing film of all time until Jaws three years later. Uh, it was responsible for 10% of the total U.S. box office in 1972. So huge for the film and industry. If you, see, if you like look up some of the pictures too of opening week, it's pretty cool because I like those old-timey pictures of people waiting around the block. Yeah. It almost makes me wonder like, if it wasn't a huge success would Cabaret have won? Like, I think that might be something, that might be a slight consideration there. Also, Cabaret came out in February, Godfather in March. Wow. That does not happen often. I had a friend who, uh, he's, he's passed away now, but he was a producer in Hollywood back in the late 1960s, the early 1970s. And uh, he saw this film for the first time on opening night. And he's turned to his wife after the first hour of the film and said, I've been to my first Italian wedding because it felt <sighs> so realistic. He said he never forgot that. And that always remained as his favorite part of the film. Wow. Is it who I think it was? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I had, yeah. The Christian, if you want to explain. Oh, you, you say you, you knew who he was. Yeah, it was um, his name was Steve Blauner and he was a producer um for bbs uh which was a film oh. production company in the 70s and it stood for bert bob and steve and he was steve so that company created you know the last picture show easy rider five easy pieces uh hearts and minds was a documentary that won an academy award and there were some other films early in jack nicholson's career that he was pretty instrumental in that's amazing i bet so he has a lot of great stories <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I recorded a lot and wrote a lot down, luckily. Uh, just nice. Things were quite great, yeah. So if you ever see the BBS box set of the Criterion, that is yeah. that, that yeah. That That's is, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so The Godfather won a record five Golden Globes, which would hold on to the record until La La Land won seven, 2016. Um, on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movies, it was number three in 1998, and they bumped it up to number two in 2007. Uh, for AFI's 100 Years, 100 Thrills, it's number 11. It was their number two movie quote of all time with, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Number five, um, AFI's film score of all time. It was their number one gangster film of all time. And the Writers of Guild of America also voted the script number two best ever after Casablanca. Christian, of course, of course, there's a Golden Girls reference to The Godfather. I'd be disappointed if there wasn't. I mean, Sophia is Italian. She comes from Sicily. But basically, the one reference is uh, Dorothy's trying to remarry her husband that she's divorced. She has to get Sophia's blessing. And they're like, well, why don't you just offer her something? She's like, well, that's right. She thinks of herself as the godfather. I'll just make her an offer she doesn't remember. Amazing. Thank you. Also, for our Zay shout-outs, the mm. one shout-out that Zay gets per episode, In the Zay contract. doesn't like this movie. Oh. And I forgot to ask why, so <laughs> leave it at that. That's a cliffhanger. That's a cliffhanger. <laughs> Tune into Zay's letterbox to see why. <laughs> but yeah, The Godfather. I, I feel like it's one, you know, we could do a whole episode on this and talk about it for hours. Um, but any big final thoughts that either of you have before we jump into 
our overall rankings for these nominees. It's the greatest movie ever made. Though. There we go. I've watched like the six hour, what is it, chronological cut, which is pretty good. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that is The Godfather. Obviously, we will be talking about both of its sequels. Um, so it's Godfather Part 2 won Best Picture, and Part 3 was nominated in 1990 as well. So, And Anthony will probably be on with those because yep. we'll have Godfather Part 2, and then uh, Goodfellas is nominated the same year as Part 3. So, it, Yeah, very interesting storyline there. Just your token Italian to run to whenever there's a, <laughs> a mob film nominated. <laughs> But I'll be that person because I've seen them all. So I'm good. <laughs> there we go. But yeah. Um, so yeah, those are the five nominees for Best Picture, including our big winner. And now we will go ahead and jump into our rankings of these five nominees, going from five to one. Anthony, would you like to get us started on ranking your five? Sure, from five to one. Yeah. Uh, my order is... That number five, no surprise here, The Emigrants. Uh, number four, Sounder. Number three, Cabaret. Number two, Deliverance. And number one, The Godfather. All right, I'll go next. And number five, I've also got The Immigrants. Number four, I've got Sounder. Number three, I have Deliverance. Number two, I have Cabaret. And number one, I have The Godfather. Kind of by a long shot. All right, for me, I have number five, Sounder, because y'all haters. I have number four, Deliverance. Ooh. That was pretty low. I was surprised. Number three, I got The Immigrants. All right. Now, this actually was not as easy as you would think, because I have texted Brett through my numerous watches of Cabaret saying, maybe they should have won. Maybe they should have done this. Maybe they should have left the gun and took the cannoli. Or I guess in this case, the Wiener Schnitzel. But my number two is Cabaret, and my number one is The Godfather. Though for me, it was very much a struggle until the second viewing of The Godfather, which I was like, no, you know what? I'm confident in this decision. I did have it listed as my personal best in a, uh, a list I have on my letterbox, and I was like, I'm good. I'm going to keep it. I agree. Yeah. I remember Christian and I, I texted you before we started watching these. I'm like, because I... Anthony, at the time, I didn't know that you were such a big fan of The Godfather. And so I'm like, Christian, how do you think these rankings are going to go? And Christian was like, me, Cabaret, you and Anthony Godfather. And you know what? Wow. The, the Godfather <laughs> pull, came from behind, pulled it out, got the win here. So Loved it. I love it. Awesome. So as always, Toby um, did a overall ranking for us. Thanks as always to Toby for doing that. Um, we actually have a tie down at the bottom. Um, so we're just going to go alphabetically here. Sounder and the immigrants um, tied there down at the bottom. Deliverance at number three, Cabaret at number two, and of course, The Godfather at number one. One of the all-time greats. What can we say? This is like a very solid, like next to Casablanca, they got it right. Absolutely. And I got to say, I actually did to some degree, like all five of these movies, which has not been the case for the nominees in a while. So overall, I enjoyed these, which is nice. A lot of films that we see, there are at least three films that we could point to out of these five that have sort of remained in the culture, which is also something that's kind of 
interesting, especially when you see some years where you don't even hear of the nominees. And some of these films you'll never right. hear of again. I mean, Godfather, Cabaret, and Deliverance are all films that people still reference constantly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very much still part of the cultural lexicon. Yeah, this is great. Um, so as always, be sure to tune in for our next episode because we will be jumping right back into 1972. As always, we each pick two more movies to go over and discuss. Um, got some fun ones to go over there as well. Um, but as always, thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Check us out on all social media, guildedfilms.com. Thanks to Joshua Elnodi for doing our music. Christian, you got a hand raised? Yes, thank you, teacher. Uh, Anthony, I want you to tell people what you're working on. Yes. Okay, I have a short documentary that's almost wrapped on production and um, in the middle of editing about a diner, local diner here, it's called the Bendix Diner, that's owned by a blind waiter named uh, John. He's also a stand-up comedian. Uh, so I've been working on a piece about him for the last two years that should hopefully be available to watch online sometime around January, February. Uh, and I'm also working I'm in development of a podcast that I've been working on for the last uh, two and a half years. It's a true crime podcast where I follow, I'm following this one story from the next town. Uh, I got in touch with the victim's family and I had a relationship with, with one of the sisters for you know, two years, we, we spoke on the phone and she sort of told me her life story. And there's been a lot of twists and turns since then, uh, but I'm looking to sort of pitch it to a network and try to get a development deal in the works. That sounds amazing. I'm excited to check out both that documentary and um, the, the podcast. That sounds great. Titles TBD. Perfect. Thanks for sharing. I will. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on. I've, I've loved listening to all the episodes of this, and it was great to be part of the production of it. Perfect. Checks in the mail. <laughs> what I want to hear. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, thanks, Anthony, for joining us. Really looking forward to continuing this the next time we come on. Um, Christian, any final thoughts from you before we close up shop? That was supposed to be like the, good. the, like, the yeah, door yeah. closing. Yeah. Yep. That was good. That was As good. the audience is like, dead air, dead air. No, I like <laughs> I have a camera cover and I close it like the Godfather would. <laughs> that was good. Amazing. Well, yes, thanks as always for listening, and we will catch up with you next time. See ya. Bye-bye.